the first week of the Alec Murdoch murder trial has left us with more questions than answers, I think. We do have an unredacted 911 recording and a lot of body cam footage, but what happened with Paul Murdoch's truck? And let's talk about the conflict that required this case to go to SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, because I, at the end of the day on Thursday, have a lot of questions and we need to talk about them. I'm legal analyst Emily D. Baker. This is The Quick Bits, where I break down just the main points of the pop culture and entertainment cases I'm currently covering on YouTube and The Emily Show podcast. Let's get into it. While I'm doing trial coverage, I am not going to also be breaking down my longer form podcast, The Emily Show, but to let you know what was on it. This week's Emily Show goes over all of the issues with the blood spatter expert in this case, and that's where we start with motions, but we'll get to the motions in a minute, in a very quick minute. So on Monday, the first day of trial, we just went through jury qualification. Can you be on the jury? Can you not be on the jury? Whittling down the 900 people summoned to get to a group of 80 that would then be seated or yeeted. On Tuesday, more jury qualification and then motions in the afternoon. The prosecution quickly said that they would not be mentioning or calling the blood spatter expert until that defense motion for sanction was addressed, but that that motion for sanctions didn't need to be addressed yet because I think the prosecution is not going to be bringing it up, but they said it didn't need to be addressed yet because they would not mention it until the motion was done. So I think the prosecution wants to let the evidence come in and see if they need it, which is interesting because hearing more testimony, the question to me is not why doesn't or or what blood does Alec Murdoch have on him, but why doesn't he? If he's saying he's checking the pulse at this crime scene we've learned is quite bloody, then why don't we see any of that? And later in evidence, we learned that some of the blood is already coagulated and congealed. That could leave fingerprinting on Maggie or on Paul if they were touched, if it was already coagulated or congealed. And so I know that feels like a lot of detail, but there are a lot of questions here to make what Alec Murdoch said in his 911 call that we'll get to later in this episode match with the physical evidence. Then on that hearing on Tuesday, there was a long evidentiary hearing on ballistics evidence with a live witness talking about the fact that the gun that shot Maggie Murdaugh and shot over six bullets ejected casings and the tool markings on those ejected casings matched the tool markings on other ejected casings of the same caliber from elsewhere on the property, from near the home and from a weapons range or a gun range on the property. So now we know that the prosecution believes that the weapon that was used to shoot Maggie Murdoch that is now missing was a family weapon that was used to shoot around the house. And again, that weapon is missing. There was then a quick mention of third-party guilt where the defense said, I would never, I would never, I would never just blurt it out. Though the defense has dropped little hints like it seems more likely that there were two people the defense has not said this third person did the thing, but they have been very calculated in sowing in doubt. So even though the defense sometimes comes across as if he's fumbling through papers and flustered with technology and, oh, gee, shucks, witness, please explain to me what's going on. The way that he words things is intentional 
and specifically rendered to so doubt in the mind of this jury. And he says it almost every time. So suspects, perpetrators, shooters, almost always a plural. So whether you like the style of Dick Harputlian or not, there is an amount of gamesmanship in the expertise at which he is trying to weave those seeds of doubt in the minds of the jury. Because once they go to deliberate, someone on that jury is going to say, but there's two weapons. Shouldn't there be two shooters? Wouldn't we expect to see two shooters? And I don't know if the prosecution will be able to really button that up with certainty without the weapons. On Wednesday, a jury of eight women and four men are seated with six alternates. And then the court made an order sealing any graphic images. So the previous court order about evidence was that the media had access an hour after court to photograph evidence, to review evidence, to look at evidence that was marked and admitted. However, what this order did was seal graphic images, autopsy reports, and autopsy photos and crime scene photos so that they will not be reviewed. There can be a motion to unseal at the end of trial. And if there is a motion that is granted, those items can then be reviewed. Each party is to make a placeholder. And we've already seen the parties referring to that. So they will show a picture to the witness and then they will have a placeholder that will go to the court with that sealed image. Again, these are images that for not just for the dignity of the victims, but also there are some things that just aren't truly aren't needed. But I'm someone who's looked at a lot of crime scene photographs and I'm like, yeah, yeah, nobody's nobody, even the law enforcement officers that arrived on scene probably don't want to see these crime scene photos or this crime scene. Then we get into opening statements. What we learn from the prosecution is that they immediately get into the gun and that the fact that these guns are used, that these were family guns, that the kind of ammo that was used was ammo that was also elsewhere on the property because they matched the casings. We know that video shows Alec up at the kennels mere minutes before Maggie and Paul's cell phones and the prosecution said went silent forever. So Paul, who was 22 years old, had been on his phone. He had been Snapchatting. We hear in the defense's statement that Paul had also been messaging a girl to go to the movies. So he was very actively on his phone, as lots of us are. And then his phone goes silent. But just moments before that, Alec Murdoch was in the background and you can hear him on that Snapchat video because Paul was talking with a friend about the dog at the kennel. I think what the prosecution is going to argue with this is that Alec was up at the kennels and then he says that he left. But if he left and the phones went silent just moments after, wouldn't he have heard the gunshots up at the kennel? Wouldn't after just leaving your wife and son, hearing the gunshots up at the kennel be concerning to you. And then if you called them and they didn't answer, wouldn't you then wonder why? So the prosecution is basically saying, so for your story to be plausible, you had to catch the defendant with a gun in his hand, didn't you, Chutney? That is what the prosecution is trying to set up in this case. The defense then did their opening. The prosecution also repeatedly planted the idea that Alec going all over the place going to see his mom late at night, and then calling people on the phone was a manufactured alibi. The defense started their opening saying that it was an honor to represent Alec and saying that the prosecution's words are just theories, they are not facts, and then said repeatedly that these victims were butchered and goes into graphic detail about the way 
that Paul and Maggie were killed and the damage done particularly to Paul, saying that Paul was the apple of his father's eye, that Maggie's phone was found by Find My iPhone down the road, that Alec gave them the code, that these were close-range shootings, again, setting up the idea that no father could do this, no husband could do this. That is the seed that is being planted, that these were so gruesome, these victims were butchered, that no loving father could do this. He talks about the fact that this was a loving family, that they had been at a baseball game, they had spent the day together, and that there's no reason that this would happen. He also said in his opening that Alec was questioned in a very accusatory way, and he might not have dealt all the facts with law enforcement. So I expect in the four statements that Alec gives to law enforcement, and those are on video and audio, we will hear some things that maybe aren't specifically true, but you can't convict someone on lying to the police alone. And then on Thursday, we get right into the prosecution's case in chief with their law enforcement witnesses. Throughout the day, we saw witnesses with body cam footage, the 911 calls, a witness with a drone. We saw the fire chief that showed up and described the conditions of the body. And then it ended the day with Jason Chapman, who's a sheriff, talking about handing the case over to SLED. He's the one that mentions that Paul Murdoch's truck is not located till the next morning. His Ford F-250 is found down the highway. It's very interesting to me that that truck is found off Highway 63. Who moved it? How did it get there? I have more questions than answers on that. And why was law enforcement looking for it? This sheriff witness said repeatedly that he, his mind was thinking, how did these victims get up to the kennels? Why are there no cars where parked at the kennel for them to get up there? The chat asked, could Alec Murdoch have driven them up? We know they were all up at the kennels together. Could he have driven them up there together? We know he left the crime scene. The prosecution says after the murders, the defense is going to say before the murders, they happened while he was gone and then he came home and discovered them. So there's no car for Paul and Maggie. So did Alec take them up there? He never really discloses that, or at least not based on the evidence we've seen. We heard about the fact that the weather was a huge factor in this case. There was a storm coming in about 45 minutes from the time that law enforcement arrived on the scene. They were trying to mark evidence as fast as they can, but they already knew that the case was going to be turned over to SLED. This witness said because there was a conflict, it had been determined that the case might be turned over to SLED if it turned out that Alec Murdoch was like that Alec Murdoch. But nothing further was described. And I was like hitting my desk, like, pause, go back, ask again. The prosecution probably knows why that is. The defense probably knows why that is. And this local jury might also go, uh-huh, that's exactly what that is. But we at home don't know what it is. But they knew that there was a conflict with Alec Murdoch, and this case would need to go to the state law enforcement division, the SLED division. And because it would be two hours before SLED investigators would get to the crime scene and the storm was 45 minutes out, they tried to put up tents to cover Maggie Murdoch's body to preserve evidence mark with flags where the evidence was, but we're learning that not a ton of crime scene photos were taken. And as I mentioned, we heard the unredacted 911 calls for the first time. We hear the call get transferred from one county to the other. We hear Alec Murdoch talking about the boat case and says on the 911 call that Paul has been threatened for months and months and months. He's been hit for several times. When the 911 operator asks, who is threatening your son? He says, my son knows. 
he is told not to touch them. He said, I've already touched them trying to get a pulse to see if they were breathing. And then was asked, did your son report the threats? And he said, yes, ma'am. I don't know if we'll see that come up. He then says, I need to call some family and the line ends. He also describes the scene as blood being everywhere. And then he described that Paul had a hole in his head and that he could see his brains. So I understand why the 911 call had previously been redacted when it was obtained by a public information request. It's also been talked a lot about with all of the witnesses on Thursday, the water around the kennels. And at the very end of the day, there was a fiery exchange between the prosecution and Dick Harputlian, the lead defense attorney who was trying to shut down a line of questioning about whether there was blood in the water that was near the kennels. I wonder if the prosecution's going to go the way of Alec was hosing off his hands, himself, his shoes, or whatever, because they were asking if there was blood in the water, and the defense really fought to shut down that line of questioning. This defense attorney will stand up and walk up on the prosecutor. I would have been like, Your Honor, can you tell him to sit down and step away from me? Because he's not going to walk up on me in my trial. But also, I'm used to attorneys trying to walk up into my space. No, this is my space. You go over to your side of the courtroom. He also walks right up into the witness stand. And so while Harputlian seems maybe uncoordinated with his cross-examination during the beginning, he wears witnesses down with compound questions. And by the end of his cross-examination, he's right up at the witness stand with rapid-fire questions. It is strategy. And if witnesses underestimate this attorney, they are going to end up turned around backwards. And it's very interesting to watch. The prosecution doesn't really have that kind of strategy in a direct examination. They need to get the evidence out clearly so the jury understands and not get lost in the weeds, but also make sure that they don't go too high level because they know this case inside and out. The jury doesn't. They need to keep buttoning things up. This is not an easy case for the prosecution to win. And we are already seeing the defense going to every length to sow those seeds of doubt. I don't want to underestimate this case has a lot to come. There's a lot of evidence to come, but it is not just an easy win for the prosecution. I think whatever happens in the next weeks of trial, we will definitely be surprised but I would like some answers. Here's what I want to see answered. What happened with that F-250? Was it ever tested? Was it tested for somebody driving away? Was it tested for gunshot residue? Is the thought that somebody shot Paul Murdoch and drove the F-250 away, will we see it in any of the Snapchat videos? Was it up at the kennels before the shooting? Or had it been down on the highway because he loaned it to a friend? The defense in their opening statement said that Paul was irresponsible, that he kind of left guns everywhere and in cars and here, there, and all the things. So what's up with the car? Is this an escape vehicle that was never tested? Because that's not going to play well to a jury. Or was it something that Alex's family members drove off when they showed up at the property? Because what we heard from one of the witnesses was lots of individuals showed up at this property. That's a big question for me. The other question is, I want to know everything about the cell phones, where people were, where they were going, where they were pinging, how close this cell tower is, how far the radius is. Do we have GPS on maps or apps? All of that. I have a lot of questions, and I very much want to see Alec Murdoch's interviews to police. 
I hope that the prosecution will stop banging on about whether or not Alec Bernard was crying at the crime scene when police showed up. First, police showed up over 20 minutes after the 911 call was made. So this man had time to stew or pace or calm down or fire up or whatever. The fact that he's crying or not crying at the crime scene was talking to police doesn't really matter much to me. Some shifts in demeanor do, but not the fact that he's not crying. And the prosecution keeps trying to make this out to be a gotcha moment. I don't think it is. I just don't. And if all you have in this case is he wasn't crying at the crime scene, then the prosecution has some big, big problems in this case. And if you're confident in what his cell phone is telling you, it doesn't matter if he was crying or not. All of the police officers that testified, everyone that interacted with him that night so far said he seemed distressed and distraught. And to them, it seemed genuine based on their testimony. And with that, we're going to get into week two next Monday. I am doing gavel-to-gavel coverage of the trial on my long-form channel, The Emily D. Baker. So if you want to join us for a live stream, that's great. And if these summaries are helpful, please go ahead and let me know or share it with someone who's trying to get caught up on this trial because here we go. I will see you next week. For deep dives into the stories that I covered here, you can find them on my YouTube channel at The Emily D. Baker and The Emily Show Podcast. I stream every Tuesday and Thursday. The podcast goes live on Wednesdays. And if you want more Law Nerd community, come join us at lawnerdsunite.com.